Philippians chapter 2. We've been studying through this awesome book for about the last month. And this morning, we come to one of the most powerful sections uh, of Philippians. And there is so much personal application out of this text as there is throughout the whole book. I I love Philippians. It's my favorite book. Uh, There's so much here. Uh, It's so practical. It's so encouraging. Uh, It strengthens you. It just kind of pushes you forward in your walk. But what we need to see this morning is that this passage, uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 11, is all about Jesus Christ. And I want to just encourage you, first and foremost, that this morning, as we study this text, and I'm so glad that, that Michelle picked those hymns because they were all focused on Christ. And she didn't know that. We didn't talk. But that's how the Lord works. And I'm encouraged by that because we've already had our focus on the Lord. And now we're going to focus on Him even more. And I hope that as we study that you will just be amazed all over again by what Jesus has done. You know, it's so easy if you've been saved a long time to, to and I say this from experience, to just kind of get a little bit um, complacent or apathetic or dull by what Christ has done. But Jesus Christ came to die for our sins. We say that so easily and so readily, but think about the implication of that. There's really no way that we can understand the depth of God's love and the sacrifice that he made uh, for us. But this passage probably describes it better than any other in scriptural. And it's, it's really critical that we let this truth this morning really sink into our hearts and minds. Not only because it will cause us to love him more, but, but because it is probably the most important instruction scripture gives us, the most concise and clear instruction scripture gives us on how we should live. Now, Philippians is a very logical book. It's very practical. It's encouraging. um, And it gives us really tremendous insight into how we're supposed to live as disciples of Christ. And we've established early on that the theme is that we would live joyful, contented lives, uh, exalting Christ in everything. So how do we do that? How does that play out? What does it look like? A lot of times we need instruction to to know what it is. But, But for this part... The only way we can understand what it means to live a joyful, contented life that exalts Christ in every way is to look at Jesus and to understand what he did. And that is what's described here in verses 3 to 11. Because it's easy to accept Jesus so we can be saved, and it's easy to have a relationship with Jesus because we are saved, and it's easy to know about Jesus so we can trust him and and we can praise him. But, But there's one more calling beyond getting saved and having a relationship and knowing about him, there's another calling there that is probably every bit as important as as being saved. Romans says that we've been declared by God to be conformed to Christ's image. And then in 1 John, we're told that if we say we're living for him, then we have to walk as he did. In other words, if you're saved this morning, if you've trusted Christ as your Savior, then your responsibility and my responsibility is to look exactly like him. Now, Philippians 1.21, the theme verse that we studied last week, uh, Paul said, to me to live is Christ. In other words, I'm torn between wanting to go to heaven, I'm at the end of my life, and I know that will be magnificent, but while I'm here, Every facet of my life, every goal that I have, every thought of my brain, every action that I portray is is to live 
for Christ. And that's not just some kind of nice goal, nice dream that we can't really possibly obtain, that it's beyond our ability. It's the expectation of every believer, and it's possible, and it's eminently possible, because we're filled with the Spirit of Christ. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. So if we're going to be conformed to Him, and we're going to live like He did, then we have to have a very clear understanding of who Jesus was and how He thought and acted. And verses 3 to 11 here in Philippians chapter 2 are the textbook. All right, so let's read it starting in verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out on your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. For this reason also God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, all throughout the first chapter of the book, and you can look back, and it's interesting as you kind of skim the first chapter, how many times you say, see the word Christ or the word Jesus or those two words together? Because this is a very Christ-centered book. And in the first chapter, Paul emphasized again and again and again this theme of living for Christ and exalting Christ in how he lived. In fact, just skim back through. In chapter 1 and verse 6, he says that God is working to perfect us to be like Christ until we see him. In verse 11, he reminds us that we're filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Christ. In verse 18, he says that whatever happens to him, he wants Christ to be proclaimed. In verse 20, he hopes and expects that Christ will be exalted whether he lives or dies. In verse 21, he says to live as Christ. In verse 27, he says conduct yourselves in a way that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. So six times in 27 verses, Paul says this is what it should look like. And now in chapter 2, he shows us how to do it. Now, this is going to require a completely different way of thinking than is natural to our humanity. And our flesh is going to fight it, and, and the devil is going to tempt us to resist it, and our mind is going to try to nuance it, uh, to, to try to make it how we want. But the Spirit's words here are very, very clear. And his example is even more profound. And he gives us five primary instructions. So I want to encourage you, write some things down this morning. Don't just sit and listen, though you guys listen very well. But, but write some things down this morning, or at least underline them in the text. Because here in this compact section of Scripture, he says there are five instructions that we have to know to live like Christ. Number one, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. And we'll come back and develop each of these. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit. Second of all, be humble in your mind. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Number two, be humble in your mind. Number three, prove your humility by regarding others more important than yourself. So do nothing from selfishness, be humble, 
Prove the humility by regarding others more important than yourself. Number four, look out for the interests of others as much as your own. And then number five, have the attitude of Christ Jesus. Now, the first four flow out of the fifth one. So let's start at five and work backwards and get our application. Look back at verse five. He says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now let's get that into our heart. Have this attitude in yourselves that was also in Christ Jesus. Have this attitude in you that was in Christ. In other words, we're going to look at the example of Christ. We're going to see the attitude that was in him. And then we are to model it, personify it, live as an example of it, uh, have it be true of our lives in every single way. So the attitude of Christ now needs to come into us. And I want you to notice that this is not a suggestion. It's a command. He says, this is what you are to do. The Spirit says, you're supposed to do this. And I'm going to help you because I indwell you and I equip you and I empower you to obey. So if this is the starting point for living like Christ, it begins with his attitude and his mindset. And the best way for us to understand his attitude is to look at what he did. Because attitude, uh, excuse me, actions are always an explanation of attitude. You can fake your way through life for a while but eventually, what is in your heart will come out. You can bluff, you can fake, you can fool, you can be a fraud, you can do all those things. You can hide your convictions or you can uh, just not show what you really believe or what's in your heart. But eventually, it is going to come out. But what he says is Jesus was never disingenuous. He was never a fraud. He was never fake. His reason for living was predicted by the prophets. It was proclaimed by the angels. And then he came and fulfilled it in every way. Now, the first question we have to ask before we look at that is, why did he bother coming? Now, that would seem uh, almost trite for somebody that's been saved a long time. But, but even if you've been saved uh, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, ask the question again, why did he come? Now, the simplest answer is he came to offer us salvation from sin. So then you ask the next question, why would he do that? We were sinners. He didn't have to do that. And then you come to the answer is that it's because he loves us. So then you ask a third question, what is the primary characteristic of love? It's not emotional satisfaction. It's not the fluttering in your gut when you see the other person. It's not being appreciated and fulfilled. Love is defined as being selfless and sacrificial. And the Bible says that God is love. He's the very definition of love. You can't understand love apart from God. People think they can, but they can't. So love is not just, oh, and it's not, oh, and, and it's not, well, I feel good. It, it, it is absolute, selfless, sacrificial thinking. So God's love is proved and exemplified by his selfless sacrifice. And it's exemplified, verse 5, by Christ. But here's the key. For him to come and save us, he had to become like us. This is the great mystery. This is the great uh, uh, 
thing that's so hard to understand from a human standpoint is that to deliver us, God had to become like us because somebody had to fulfill the law that we had repeatedly broken. The debt had to be paid, the curse had to be lifted, and we had to be purchased from bondage. Now, God had every right in his holiness and his justice to say, sorry, you blew it, I gave you every chance, you sinned against me, hope is lost, you got nothing, I'm done with you, you can just go to hell. We were completely guilty, we were completely condemned, and we could not save ourselves. Aren't you glad that God's a gracious and merciful God? Because everything in his holiness and everything in his justice required him to say, you're toast, if you'll excuse the vernacular. You're dead. You have nothing. You have no hope. There's no salvation. You can't do it yourself. And I have every right to leave you that way. But I'm not going to. And it's the method by which God chooses to do this, to redeem us, that is so instrumental for us in understanding how we should live because this gives us extra insight into why it's such an offense to God for us to be proud and unholy. There's really nothing worse that could happen than to show contempt and disregard for God's grace by going back to our old life. After we've been redeemed, after we've tasted of grace, after we've understood the power of God's salvation, which has transformed our lives and filled us with His Holy Spirit, there's nothing worse that we can do than to go back and embrace how we used to live. It's contempt for the grace of God. Paul talks about it in Romans 5-8. to But I want you to see what Christ has done. And how it impacts how we view this. Look at verses 6 to 8. These three verses, verses 6, 7, and 8, have incredible theology. And it should just, as I was studying this, I was just overwhelmed by gratitude and humility that, that God has done this. And, and I thought, you know, there's, I was trying to think of what's the application here, and I was praying about it. And the Lord said, you know what? Sometimes you just need to study theology. We're, we're such a application culture, right? That, that we always, what's the bottom line, Paul? Give me, give me what I'm supposed to do this week and I'll go do it. Well, let's stop for a minute. Let's not grab application right now and let's just study theology because these three verses have unbelievable theology. There are five statements here that, that not only define who Christ is, but they also define the attitude that brought him here and now we're called to have this attitude. So the first statement talks about his divine nature, then the, sec and the, the latter four statements talk about him being human. We know that he was fully God and fully human. How does that work? I have no clue. I'm not that, that brilliant. So he's God, fully God, full nature of God, in human flesh. He's fully a human. He experiences everything that a human does, but he's also God. Now, those things are important because it says, look at verse uh, the first verse, verse 6, it says that he now has come and he, didn't re he existed in the form of God but didn't regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped. We have to understand about Jesus, and this is basic theology and probably all of you know it, but we're going to say it again because we're studying theology right now. Jesus was the Son of God. He was God in flesh. 
Colossians 1 says that he was the image of the invisible God. But now look at what Paul writes. Jesus didn't regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped. Now, what does that mean? That's always kind of confused me as I've studied that. And what it essentially means is he didn't have to make a claim to be God because he already was God. Jesus didn't have to come and say, I'm God in flesh. In fact, when anybody recognized him as God, he said, shh, don't tell anybody. And why would he do that? Why wouldn't he come and say, I am God in flesh, I am now announcing myself, and I have come to save you. For much of his ministry, Jesus says, don't tell anybody who I am. And when people recognize him, he just said, shh, let, let people figure it out. Because he was not coming to, to declare himself as, as God in the sense that he was going to dominate now because that wasn't his purpose. We're going to see that in a minute. So he didn't regard equality with God as something to be grasped. In other words, he doesn't have to prove himself as God. And that fact alone is amazing that God loves us because if God didn't care, Jesus wouldn't have come. Say that again. If God didn't care, Jesus wouldn't have come. If God's not merciful, if God's not loving, if he doesn't want to redeem us, he doesn't want to save us from our sins, then Jesus has no point being here. Jesus himself even says, I didn't come to condemn the world, I came to save the world. In other words, everybody views Jesus either as this passive, kind of kind of soft person who's just about love and tolerance, or they view God as harsh and demanding. Jesus says, I didn't come to condemn you. I came to save you. I came to deliver you from the sin. But look at how he did it. Look back at verse 6. It says that while he was God, and while he showed his divine power at times, he intentionally took a lesser position by taking the form of a man. How did he do this? Here are the next four truths. First of all, he emptied himself. He emptied himself. This is a fascinating concept that we really can't fully grasp because we have limited knowledge. But essentially it means that Jesus willingly made himself of no reputation. In other words, he laid aside his rights and his recognition as God, he didn't announce himself, declare himself, demand that everybody pay attention. Instead, he took the form of a servant. Now, we can't understand just how incredible that is, but let me give you an example. Think about a time when you've accomplished something, or you've deserved recognition, and you're waiting for people to notice you. If you were ignored or slighted, you're kind of offended, right? You're kind of put off like, wait a second, I deserve some, some credit for this. Why didn't anybody notice this? And we get a little frustrated, a little angry, a little hostility in our relationships. We're like, man, I'm really hurt. I, I, wish, I wish somebody had noticed me. Well, Jesus intentionally did that. He intentionally said, I don't want you to recognize me this way. I don't want you to see me this way because I have come to be a servant. I've come to sacrifice myself and I'm emptying myself of the right to demand credit that I deserve and I'm emptying myself of the right to be recognized as God, which I am and you'll eventually know, but I have come to take a different attitude. And then we see the second attitude is that after emptying himself of his rights and his recognition, he took the form of a bondservant. I love the phrase bondservant. Jesus could have come as a king. 
He could have come as a warrior. Remember, when he comes in on Palm Sunday, people are a little confused, like, why in the world is he riding a donkey? I mean, you would expect the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and the Savior of mankind, God in flesh, he'd have a big white stallion, and he'd have troops around him, and he'd have people following him and protecting him, and he'd have a sword in his hand, and he'd say, I'm the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Instead, Jesus says, can you guys borrow a donkey from me? And you guys throw your coats on the ground, and I'm going to ride this donkey, and as I approach Jerusalem, I'm going to weep. People are going, what? See, he didn't come to declare himself the king that he is. He didn't come to draw attention to that because his purpose was to be a servant. And not just any servant, his purpose was to be a bond servant. Now, that's been a favorite concept of ours since we did the Revelation study. And it goes all the way back to Exodus, where the law established that a slave could be set free after seven years, unless. The slave decided, I love my master so much that I will voluntarily choose to stay as a servant for life. And when the man chose to stay as a servant for life, they would take him and they'd put him up against the wall and they'd stretch out his earlobe and they'd take an awl and they'd hammer a hole in his ear and then they would put a ring in it. And that, uh, that was a declaration that that person was a bondservant. They had willingly sacrificed their rights, and their life to the master voluntarily for life. Now, Jesus says, I've come to be a bondservant. I have come to deliver myself to another person's will, in this case, the will of the Father. I've come to disregard my own will as a man, and I have chosen by doing this to become the sacrifice for your sin and to give you an example of what it is to be a bondservant of Christ. See, God doesn't coerce us into being saved. And he doesn't coerce us into being a bondservant. If we love him, we will gratefully and willingly give our lives completely to him. See, there's the servant of Christ, and then there's the bondservant of Christ. The bondservant of Christ gives everything of themselves. They disregard their own will and their own desires like Jesus did. And they present themselves as a living sacrifice to God, holy and pleasing, which is the reasonable act of worship. See, see, a lot of people can accept Christ and just kind of do the Christian thing. There's a difference between that and being a bondservant. Because a bondservant is a declaration, Christ, I'm yours. Everything I have, everything I want, everything I desire, my will is completely submitted and surrendered to you. You lead me, and I will follow, and I will trust. Now, you say, well, that's, wow, that's really extreme. I'm not ready for that. Well, that's the attitude we're supposed to have. That's not a suggestion. It's a command have this attitude that Christ had. Look at the third thing. He was made in the likeness of man. And I was really hit by that this week. What an amazing statement that is, that mankind was created in God's image. And now Jesus comes, and what a humbling thing now, to become a man, 
especially when mankind was completely infected by sin and it had become such an offense to God. But, but Jesus knew that in order to redeem man, he had to become a man. He had to experience our flesh and blood. He had to be tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin. He had to fulfill the law, and he had to take all of our sin upon himself to be the sinless sacrifice for our sin. Hebrews says that he had to be made like us in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest to make propitiation or payment for the sins of the people. Now, what's the beauty of this? The beauty of this is Jesus understands everything that's going on in our lives. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to be mocked. He knows what it's like to be opposed. He knows what it's like to deal with the struggle of self uh, racing and pushing against, even though he didn't succumb to it. He knows what it's like to, to hurt and to feel pain and to experience hardship and to be lonely and to be rejected. He knows all of it. And by doing that, we can say, well, my Savior is not far off. My Savior isn't removed. My Savior isn't just some being that's out there that doesn't really get my life. He lived exactly like I did. He understands my life. He's acquainted with my griefs. And he cares for me because he's experienced it. Jesus took the form of a man. And then look at the final thought here. He was obedient to the point of death on a cross. That wasn't an easy route. That was the most painful death there was. And not just the pain of being scourged and having his head ripped open and he had a crown of thorns beat on him and being slapped and whipped and spit on and, and have his flesh torn off his back and, and be... Uh, dramatically nailed to a cross and experience all the pain of that. Now he's publicly humiliated. He gives himself to be put on a cross and he's lifted up and the pain is excruciating. The word was created for crucifixion. Ex crux, the of the cross, excruciating pain. So he had the most painful death you could and he's hanging there and his breath is just short because the way crucifixion did it took everything out of you you couldn't breathe and you had to push yourself up but in pushing himself up he would have the nails drive further into his hands and his feet and he's bleeding and he doesn't look like a man and he's on the cross and if that isn't enough and the pain isn't enough, now people are mocking him and yelling at him and saying, you're the son of God. Why don't you come down from the cross? You think you're so great and mighty and wonderful? Why don't you save yourself? And one of the thieves on the other side is going, yeah, what they say. You, you, what, who do you think you are? How, how dare you say that you're son of God? So he's in complete pain and agony. He's dripping with blood, just gushing blood. He's got people mocking him, spitting at him, jeering at him. The thief is yelling at him. And while all that's going on, the weight of every sin you and I have ever committed is put on him. And he does this because he loves us. And he's not sitting on the cross going, I can't believe that dirty, filthy roads that I've got to do this for him. It says, for the joy that was set before him, we'll see in chapter 3. He endured the cross, despising the shame, because he loves us. 
We need to be broken by that. We need to be humbled by that. That every sin we've committed, just my sins alone would have caused him agony, let alone the weight of every sin that's ever been committed. No wonder the text says someday he's going to have the name that's above all names and every knee's going to bow and every tongue's going to confess. Every false God, every false religion is going to fall before him and say, you're God. Now, Go back to verse 5. Let this attitude that was in Christ be in you. And what does that mean for us? Let's work our way backwards. We're almost done. What does it mean to us? We know the example of Christ is paramount to us, but we're called to be conformed to his image. Well, we've just been given in verses 5, 6, 7, and 8 the most clear picture of of Christ that we could be given. Now, we clearly can't give our lives to save people from their sins, but we are told without equivocation to have the same attitude as Christ. So how do we sum up the attitude of Christ in one phrase? The way we can do it is to say that Christ made himself nothing. Christ made himself nothing. When he came, he wasn't serving himself. He was giving himself for our eternal interests. Everything that he did was selfless. Everything that he did was humble. And in verse 3, we're told to take the same posture. Probably the two phrases that would sum it up the best are in verses seven, uh, verse 7, that he emptied himself and he took the form of a bondservant. And I was thinking about this this week. I was thinking, how many times can I say that I've actually emptied myself uh, for the sake of somebody else, let alone for the Lord? How many times this week did I empty myself for the Lord? And you have to come back to the question that we asked last week. Is the Lord everything to me? Am I still living for myself? Am I still doing what I want? Or am I living for Christ? Am I copying Christ? Am I honoring Christ? And am I sharing Christ? Now, how do we evaluate that? Well, we can ask, would I give up? And I think I asked this question last week, but I'll ask it again. Would I give up anything God asked me to give up for the sake of obedience? If Jesus walked in the back door today and he walked up to me and said, Paul Rhodes, here's what I want you to give up today. There's something that's holding you back from being like me. Uh, There are multiple things, believe me. But let's just say there was one and he came up to me and it was something that I, that I really valued, something that I'm really holding on to, something that's, that's important to me. And, and he walked up to me and said, Paul, I want you to give that up for the sake of obedience. Would I? Would I trust him so implicitly that he is going to provide and that he'll bless and that he has my best interests in mind and that he has plans that are higher than anything that I would ever hope or dream that that by giving that up, I will be more fulfilled and more content and more joyful than I am right now. Would I trust him in that? What's on the list of things in your life that you wouldn't be willing to give up? Now, God's not cruel. He just knows how much... He needs to know how much we really love him. Imagine if we went through what Job went through. Nobody's ever gone through that again. Satan comes and he says, yeah, let me go after that guy, Job. 
God even says, before Satan says it, you seen Job? If you mess with him, he'll still bless my name. Satan says, nah, come on. Let me try. So he strips Job of everything. And Job is sitting there scraping the boils on his arm as his wife and his friends are saying, what is your problem? Why do you still follow God? And he says, you know what? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Would we say that? We're just talking about one thing giving up in our lives. Everything was taken from him. He didn't waver. He kept trusting. Why? Look back at the verse. Because he was willing to empty himself. The requirement of being a disciple, and we say this often, but let's say it again. The requirement of being a disciple is to empty ourselves daily. And the real question before us is, can we honestly pray, Lord, take me to the bottom if that will glorify you the most. Lord, whatever you need, whatever I need to sacrifice, whatever you need to empty out of my life so I would be more like Christ, whatever you need to take away, whatever you need me to voluntarily strip myself up so I would be more like Christ and so I would exalt Christ. Lord, show me, convict me, take me to that point where I have to give it up. And then you say, well, well how often do I empty myself for somebody else? Oh, we give a little bit and we try to be kind, and we serve each other. But when was the last time you thought nothing of yourself in order to serve somebody else? Your spouse, when was the last time you said to yourself, I'm going to consider myself nothing. I'm going to be a servant to my spouse. I am going to yield myself to them. As the Bible says, yield yourselves one to another. It doesn't just say, wives, submit to your husbands. It says, right before that, submit yourselves one to another as unto the Lord. So guys, let's not sit there going, all right, yeah, wife, about time you do some submitting. Come on, make yourself nothing for me. Why don't you start? Because it says, love her like, you love, like Christ loved the church. Let this mind be in you that's in Christ Jesus who made himself nothing. We should be in a competition in our marriage for who can be more nothing. For who can sacrifice more. For who can yield more. You say as a man, well, that's going to make me weak. No, it's not. It's going to make you like Christ. Was Christ weak? And wives, you say, well, he'll dominate me. No, he won't. Because he's going to be doing the same thing. When was the last time you made yourself nothing for another person? See, we love ourselves too much. We're always thinking about what we value, our pleasure, our freedom, our rights, our way, our control, our leadership. We want to be recognized and appreciated and, and, and shown that people care. And listen, that's important. That's innate. But in order to be like Christ, we're supposed to make ourselves nothing. You talk about rights. Jesus had every right we can imagine. He had every right to demand that he be recognized as the one he was. But he humbled himself. He took the form of a bondservant, and then he said, be like me. That's why way back, we're done. Look at verses 3 and 4. Paul says, live this way. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Selfishness was a political word in the Greek language. It meant to put yourself first. I know we've never seen politicians do that, but try to imagine it. 
putting yourself first. Empty conceit was being proud for no reason. So if we want to bring it down to everyday language, basically the Holy Spirit is saying, quit being so full of yourself and thinking you deserve to be first all the time. Quit being so full of yourself. You're not always right. Your way is not always best. You need an attitude change. You need to be like Christ. So do nothing. That's a strong word, and there's no equivocation to it. Do nothing out of selfishness or empty conceit. Do nothing to advance yourself. Do nothing to show your pride. In other words, there's no justification for it. There's no latitude for allowing it because it's damaging. It damages our heart and mind. It damages our relationship with Christ. And it damages our relationships and our church. There's no enemy to love that's greater than pride. There's nothing that will diminish love more than being arrogant. Any self-advancement, even if it's subtle, even if we think it's reasonable or justified, it will always diminish love. That's why he says, look at Christ, because he didn't do anything to diminish love. He did nothing but prove his love. And then he flips it around, and he says, here's the opposite instruction. With humility of mind, regard others as more important than you. See, the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself, which is good, and it's right, and we think sometimes that that we can still love ourselves a lot because it says love your neighbor as yourself, so I've got to love myself in order to be able to fulfill that commandment. So I'm just going to keep loving myself a lot, myself a lot, not myself, that would be schizophrenic. I'm going to love myself a lot, and as long as the other person's kind of equal, and they kind of feel some of my love, then I'm finishing the second greatest commandment. Problem is, that doesn't work. So the Spirit says here, regard others as more important than you. In other words, you're at the bottom of the totem pole. There's your love for God, and then there's your love for others, and then there's you. So often we elevate ourselves up equal with God, and others kind of get pushed down here, and we kind of try, but he says, no, let's, let's, let's take it a step further. Regard the interests of the other person more than yourself. I guarantee you, try that for an hour. It's hard. Try it for a day. I'm going to do nothing today, Monday. I'm going to wake up. I'm going to do nothing out of selfishness. I'm going to do nothing out of empty conceit. I am going to consider the needs of others as more important than mine every moment of every day. I'm going to be sacrificial and loving and gracious and forgiving. And the moment my pride starts to kick up, I'm going to confess it and say, Lord, don't allow that because I am going to love like Christ loves today. Do you know how hard that's going to be? By 10 o'clock, we'll have already broken it. And yet it says... This is the mindset. If Christ is going to be exalted in your life and my life, if we're going to be joyful and we're going to be contented, there's no other option and there's no other route. It begins and ends with humility and love and sacrifice and self-emptying and being a bondservant. Jesus was willing Joyfully willing, even though he was God, to do that. And because he did, listen now, because he did, your life and my life have been radically changed forever. If he hadn't been willing, 
we would be going to hell. Think of the impact that you and I can have tomorrow, today, if we start living like this. Because people aren't going to see us. They're going to see Jesus Christ. Because they're going to say, that's the mind of Christ. That's what Jesus did. And the opening for us to say, let me tell you, let me tell you how he's changed my life.